is just to let you know, it's, it's, it's often that you guys hear from myself, Pastor uh, McKinney, Peter, and others uh, from the Word, but, but we know that God is doing so much in and around uh, all of us in this place. And so um, what we did was this uh, year, you guys are going to notice, we've got a blog that we started, which is just all of the faithful saints that sit right next to you. Uh, they're going to write really exhortive, encouraging words to you. Uh, and so they're going to come out twice a month. They're going to be on our website, and they're also going to be coming through mail, uh, through email. So uh, if you're part of the distribution list, you'll get those. But I'm very excited for you you all to be built up and edified, not just by uh, the pastors and elders, but by each other. Uh, because often we get to sit down with you and we are so instructed and encouraged in ways that uh, we want everyone to hear, uh, not just us. So um, it's great that, that many people uh, can teach. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can teach something. Uh, to each other. So I uh, wanted you to be aware of that. Uh, the second is I wanted to celebrate. We took a special offering on Christmas Eve at both our gathering times for uh, Pastor Wilson. Pastor Wilson is a church planner and pastor that we support in Haiti. Um, and uh, his truck broke a number of months ago. The axle broke, which is necessary for his ministry as he travels to over seven church plants that he has planted that are uh, great distances. And um, the, the truck we knew would cost around 30 grand probably. Uh, and just thrilled at your generosity. You guys gave in one day $36,315. So praise the Lord. Uh, so we, we got above and beyond what, what we needed to give him. So uh, I, I wrote him the other day, and I can just tell you he's nothing short of elated. Uh, can you imagine being Pastor Wilson hearing that, that a church is that generous? Uh, and so we're, ho we're, we're hopeful to find the right ones so we can get them as quickly as possible. So, uh, and then lastly, there's going to be a study guide that, that came out that's, that's on uh, the web as well. I just encourage you to, to get a hold of that for James. Uh, Pastor McKinney put a lot of time into that, and it is a wonderful guide that will help you in supplement to sermons. So uh, it'll give you the text every week that I'll preach through. It'll give you spaces to study on your own leading up to that. Um, but just encourage you to grab hold of that, print it out, bring it with you on Sundays if you can, um, and that'll probably serve you really, really well. Um, there are a couple seats up here. No seats. I don't see any. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we love you. Thank you for standing. Okay. Let's pray. Ask God to expand uh, the seats and expand our hearts and uh, just and ask him to move. God, thank you that we get to be together today. Thank you that even though it's cold, uh, we don't care because we love you more than just uh, cold weather having to travel through. Thank you for uh, the gift it is to gather with God's people. Thank you that we get to hear your word. Thank you that we are filling the room. Thank you that um, we are getting to speak about truth and getting to walk in it in delight. God, would you instruct us through Pastor James this morning? Would you give us illumination? Would you give us help? Uh, would you help us to see the things you want us to see and convict and challenge and even rebuke us where necessary? Uh, Father, thank you for your word that is perfect and errant and uh, is a guide for us, Lord, that shows us more of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Jesus' name, amen. Amen, James. James is a book. James is right after Hebrews. So if you're going uh, new to the Bible, new to Christianity, uh, Hebrews is uh, near the end of the New Testament. Then comes James, a, a short letter. And uh, what we're gonna do is spend the next three months going through the book of James. Um, James, in short, just so I can give you kind of an overarching theme, is he desperately wants to pull you into joy, okay? So, so most people read this book and say, man, uh, James is pushy, James is harsh, James is fast-paced. James is all of those things because he's after your joy. Now, here's what I love. Regardless of who you are, I don't need to talk to you. We don't need to have a conversation for me to know that you want to be someone who has joy, okay? Never met anybody who says, I just don't want to be joyful. I just don't want to be thankful. I just don't want th to know where fullness of life is found. I've never met that man or woman. And James is going to show you to pull us away from the residual effects of the fall, to pull us away from worldliness, to pull us away from all of the pestering effects of sin and show us that there is a place that life can be found and joy can be found and fullness of life can be found. Found, few will find it. 
Okay, so, so few will open up James and actually listen to Pastor James and heed his wisdom and instruction. But if you do, it's promised not an easy life, but the best life. And James knows this better than anyone. It is the best life, but the Christian life's not the easiest life. But it is one where Christ is with us and we're walking in such a way as God has wired us to walk and live. Uh, and so that's what James is going to do for us. And he'll show us God primarily calls us. If you're a Christian in this room, if you've submitted your life to Jesus, you've trusted in his person and work, the primary way that God calls you into joy first and foremost is in your salvation, okay? Uh, theological word is justification. He declares you right before God, not based upon your merits, not based upon your righteousness, not based upon anything you bring to the table, but because of Jesus alone and his righteousness work and the fruit of his life, you get all of his credited to your account. Okay, so that's what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus does. He grafts you into justification. He declares you righteous. Then the second piece, secondarily, which a lot of people miss, which James is going to address is life and joy is then also brought about in your obedience through your sanctification. Sanctification is the back end of you becoming more and more like Jesus Christ after he saves you and declares you righteous, gives you his Holy Spirit. He's now saying, let's walk, let's grow, let's mature, let's increase in the image of Jesus Christ. So, so here's what you have to get before we even open up James chapter 1. Um, no act of obedience will get you on the pathway to sanctification. Okay, so there's nothing you're going to do that's somehow going to get you on that path. God's justification alone through Christ and his work alone through faith alone puts you on this path to now where you're a new man, new woman, with a new heart, new mind, and you begin to grow increasingly into the image of Jesus Christ. And what James is going to do is show us that we are not nearly far along as we thought we were. So as soon as you think you got your mouth in control, as soon as you think that you're not really worldly or your temptations are at bay or uh, your heart's really good, he'll reveal to you how dark it really is and how much you really need the Jesus who makes you right. So that's what James is going to do. Let's get into James chapter 1, and I'll provide some background, but let's get into it right away. James 1, here's what he says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Okay, so James is just introducing himself. If you're familiar to the Bible, the, the writers of the New Testament, uh, this is normal. They introduce themselves. They tell you who's writing. This is James. What you have to understand is the reason you need a little bit of background on James is because James never would have thought in his life he would say something like this. He would never have called Jesus Lord. Now, now here's why. Because he's Jesus' younger brother. Now, some of you have grown up in backgrounds or traditions where you're going, uh, that's heretical, that's crazy, you're nuts, because you heard that Mary was a perpetual virgin, right? So because she was a perpetual virgin, then she didn't have any more children, so Jesus couldn't have had any family, okay? Um, I would disagree with that because of the scriptures. You, got, you can start out, and I'll give you just a couple you can write down. They won't be on the screen, and the study God helps with this. But uh, Matthew chapter 1, you have the angel announce that, that Joseph, right, is betrothed to Mary, and that Mary's going to have Jesus, and that Joseph can't lay with Mary until Jesus is born, right, afterwards. So listen, Jesus is born, the pause is cut off, and J Joseph's like, amen, right, free, free reign. So, so he begins to enjoy Mary, okay? So that's number one. You go to all these places in the Gospels, John 7, you see that his own family didn't believe that he was the Messiah when he said he was, right? James is included in that. You got Mark 6 and Mark 3 that talk about James himself having trouble with the claims that his brother Jesus said. When you get to Mark 3, it shows how his whole family, Jesus' whole family, thinks he's out of his mind. Now, why do they think Jesus is out of his mind? Because he's claiming to be God. 
I mean, can you imagine if your sibling, your brother was on the front page of the news? You're going, oh man, what's, what's Jesus saying? Oh, he's telling everybody he's God. He descended from heaven and earth. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead, that you're a sinner. You need repentance and faith in him. Oh, let's go get him. Let's cuff him up, take him home, lock him away because he's gone crazy. He needs to be institutionalized, not be set free. So that's why his family thought he was crazy, thought he was mad because he was claiming claims that anyone would have thought were nuts. All of a sudden, he's growing in popularity. All of a sudden, his Facebook status says that he's God. You would all have issues if you saw siblings with those things. And so the whole family acts like this. James is a part of that. James can't believe this. James thinks this is hard to understand, hard to believe. That's natural, normal for any of us. But then you get to 1 Corinthians 15. And it's a beautiful chapter because at this point, Jesus has gone to the cross for sin. He has died the death, paid our debt, risen. And it says, according to Paul, he writes 1 Corinthians 15, he appears to 500 witnesses, he appears to Peter, and then he appears to James. Now, we don't know where James is on this continuum of faith of, of as he grew up with Jesus, as he witnessed his teaching and works. We do know that he preached and taught and heard those things and yet still didn't believe. But at, apparently, when he saw the resurrection, when your brother is dead and comes back to life, he goes, I believe in this now. And he is not just a tweaked new version of James. He is a totally new man who says, oh my gosh, my brother is God. He is the Messiah. He is Lord. He is my Savior. He did, in fact, rise from the dead. He did, in fact, he is, in fact, all the things that he was teaching and preaching. I submit to him. And he writes now, and look at the ways he speaks about his brother Jesus. He's Lord. That's profound. That's what a resurrection does to you when you witness a resurrection. That's why we believe in the, the cornerstone of our faith in a resurrected Savior. Otherwise, we would be just the stupidest people alive to gather and worship this Jesus and even speak about these things. And so we see that he comes to faith. You'll see that in Acts 1, he joins the early church, only 120 people at the time. And then you see he so much so is used by God that in Galatians 2, Paul will call him one of the pillars of our faith, one of the pillar builders of our faith. So notice, as James speaks to Jesus, he now calls him, calls him Lord. He's so transformed, and he's so committed to this that he'll ultimately be martyred for his belief. A lot of people say, oh, well, if he's family, then we got to throw out this letter because that's biased. Um, nothing biased about it when you're dragged up to the top of a temple mount, as church tradition tells us, and thrown off the top and don't die and still don't recant. Someone comes in and bashes your skull. That's James. This is the man who was so committed to the person and work of his brother Jesus because of what he witnessed in the resurrection and was so transformed by it. So this is who wrote this letter. And look at what he says. He says he writes to this, the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So here's what you gotta understand. You've got all these Jews at the time in the early church. This gospel's going forth. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended, gifts his Holy Spirit. Jews are trusting in Jesus Christ as, his, as their Messiah. And what happens is persecution breaks out, headed by this guy Saul, who's later Paul, the apostle Paul, who will be transformed, who will be uh, literally saved by the resurrection itself and become a, a teacher and writer of the New Testament for the Bible. But before that, his name is Saul. He's persecuting Christians. He's overseeing it all. And you have this guy, Stephen, who's being stoned in Acts 7. He's the first martyr. Saul's approving of it. Look at what happens in Acts chapter 8. You read about this. It says, Saul approved of his execution, that's Stephen, and there arose on that great day a persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. 
Okay, so Jews are trusting in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and here's what happens. You've got Saul heading up this persecution. He's dragging them into prison. He's beating them. He's killing off Christians. So a natural response is they start running for their lives, right? They're grabbing their families, grabbing their belongings, leaving their homes, and they're scattering because the persecution is so serious. Now, you got to put yourself back here. If you're James, if you're a leader in the church, and you're going to write to these people who are desperate, who are frantic, who are running for their lives, what are you going to say? He says, greetings. Hi. How are you? I mean, I'm reading this, and I'm going, these are the people he's writing to, so I thought that has to be like, you know, hi, or what's up? No, that word literally means to rejoice, have joy. It's a rejoice, it's a be glad type of greeting that James is writing. And so as you see this, he not only says that, look what he says in verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Okay, take yourself back there. Okay, you receive this letter. You're, you're James, you're a leader in the church. You see these people struggling in deeper, darker days than you've probably ever walked in and you're gonna write them a letter and you're gonna write them, what are you gonna say, stinks to be you? <laughs> How are things going? Sorry for the situation and circumstances, and James has a totally different lens on. He says, consider it pure joy. Otherworldly. That's what he's writing to these tribes, these people that are being scattered, who are running for their lives, who are facing deep, dark nights and days and seasons. And he says, when you meet various trials, not the same for everyone, but not if you do, but when. Okay, so here's what's great. Um, Pastor James kickstarts his letter on the hard days, the dark days, the painful days, the difficult days. Uh, James knows the Christian life is not the be- not the be- is the best life, but not the easiest life. And often, the closer you get to Jesus, and the more you walk with Him, the harder it gets. And I don't know what Christianity you've bought into, but the Christian faith throughout the Scriptures are: it is the best life. You have the sovereign of the universe, but that doesn't mean all your circumstances are going to be peachy. Right now, you're going to see later, this, this joy he's talking about is not happiness. And I'm, I'm always trying to interchange these and show you that they're not the same, okay? Happiness is based on circumstance. Joy is not based on circumstance. Okay, happiness is robbed from you in a moment. Joy is deep-rooted. It's in a well that no one can rob from you. That's Christian joy. Every so often, you'll see Christian joy. You see happiness everywhere, right? In the, in the, in the, on Wall Street, and people's jobs, and families. But there are, every so often, you'll meet someone with Christian joy, when everything around him is falling apart, yet he's rooted in something outside of himself, that being the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give you uh, three things he's going to roll out for us that trials do for us, that hardship does for us. So if you're in this room, you're going, I'm in, a, I'm in a dark day, I'm in a dark season, I'm, I'm walking through trial, walking through difficulty, uh, you're in good company. And, and, and just so you know, um, God's not surprised by that. And he encourages us in other letters, you shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, We live in a fractured, fallen world. Now, I'm not talking about, just so you know, when I talk about trials, I'm not talking about the pain of your own sinful choices. That might be some. I'm not talking about your blatant ignorance to the word of God. I'm talking about trials that you meet that enter your life that you can't control that are part of the fabric of God's sovereign will and purpose and the futility that is the world groaning for deliverance. Okay? That's what I mean when I talk about uh, trials. So here, here's what, number one, um, trials develop depth. I'm going to give you three Ds. I can't believe it. I nailed it. You're going to get three Ds. Okay, first one is trials develop depth in Jesus Christ. Your well starts getting dug deep. Look at what he says in verse three. For you know that the testing of this trial 
Testing of your faith produces something, produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, so James says to us and says to these Jews who are running for their lives and, and Christians that are all grafted in it as a part of this, hearing this word, he says, you, why is it you can be joyful in the hard days, dark days, and painful days? He says, because you are being tested, you can know. You have the assurance that right now you're developing, he says, steadfastness. Okay, now, steadfastness is, is really a word for perseverance, too. It's, it's kind of the same word if you actually read the translations, and it basically means to have rootedness, to have strength, to have an ability where you're holding up under pressure or your well is dug so deep that when winds come, it doesn't fall over. Like, like those, uh, those telephone poles, I mean, they got to have a really, really deep base, so when they put it in and wind comes, it doesn't blow over. Okay, that, that's the imagery he's given us. These trials produce in you a depth, a leaning into Jesus where you draw from him, you learn how trustworthy he is, how good he is, how faithful he is despite you. That's what he's revealing here. There's this, this ability to hold up under pressure. It's the opposite of collapsing. And the Bible teaches you can have joy because this is developing in you this inner strength in relation to Jesus Christ. Now, understand, like I said, um, when he says have joy in your trials that you meet, he's not talking about spirit fingers. Okay, he's not talking about like just this laughable happiness where you just conjure up fakeness about your posture. Um, he's talking about something deep. If you go to Hebrews 12, you know what you'll read? It says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Now listen, last time I checked, there's nothing happy about crucifixion. There's nothing glad about that. There's nothing great. And actually, if you keep reading the Garden of Gethsemane, it was so traumatizing for him in his humanity piece that he sweat drops of blood. He, is, he ain't happy in that moment. But he is joy-filled because he is grieving, he is bleeding, he is getting to a place where he knows he's going to accomplish something much fuller and much more valuable than just some circumstantial place he is. There's something happening to him, there's something being done with him that causes him to consider it, reckon it joy. And James says, hey, you can have the same type of joy that my brother Jesus had in the garden. You can grow in that type of joy. You can begin to draw from his strength and his maturity in the same way that he learned how to do that in his divinity and in his humanity. It's amazing. It's profound. So, so Jesus never suffered so that you and I would never suffer. He never suffered so you and I would never meet trial. He suffered so that when you and I do suffer and do meet trial, we'd be molded and shaped more into the likeness of him. So, so the win is not you living a life void of suffering. The win is seeing Jesus in his own suffering. Okay, that, that, that's the goal for you. So let's keep walking. He says in this text right here, this is so you may be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. I love this because no one talks about this anymore, ever. This, he says, let this continue. Let this process of meeting trial and growing in steadfastness continue so that you might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. When was the last time you heard somebody say, man, I'm just striving for being at the end of my life, this mature, rooted, steadfast lover of Jesus? No one talks about the end result, right? What do we all talk about? Man, end of my life, man, I want to go to a good college so I make good money, so I meet a good spouse, so I have good kids, so I have good pay with good retirement, and let those kids grow up to be good kids. They get into a good college, they get a good education, they get a good job, they can have a good spouse with a good family, with a good house, and rinse and repeat. No one talks about the win that the scriptures talk about. That is, no, the win is at the end of your life, are you mature? 
Are you increasing in godliness? Are you becoming more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ? That, that's the win according to James. It's not what you have or don't have. It's not the circumstances you're in. It's, it's what's happening to your inner soul. What's being developed in you? Uh, let me put it to you this way. Um, James says that trials develop strength, this inner strength. Uh, what if when you walked in, I said, hey, do you want to be a strong person, like a, like a deep person, a steadfast person? I guarantee you 99.9% of me, yeah? Never met someone who's like, I want to be as weak as possible. Never met that guy, okay? So, so most of you would say, yeah, I do. Hey, want some trials in your life? No. Right? See, so you can't have both. Right? This is the person who says, man, I want to learn a ton, but I don't want to read books. I want to become really strong, but I never want to work out. Like, it's not just osmosis. You're not somehow going to become the strong, rooted, deep, faithful follower of Jesus Christ and be peachy your whole life. He actually gives these to us as opportunity, right? Not as robbery. He wants to help us grow and mature in the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's his goal for you. It's not happiness. It's holiness. I don't know what Bible you pick up. You'll see from front cover to end, he's for you. He does not abandon you. He will not forsake you. He will walk with you through the fire, but his goal for you is you to be chiseled to the degree as best as he can before you reach glory where you will be in your full fullness, right, with Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing for you, and he believes that's best for you. Now, the question is, do we believe that or not? That the, the, the godliness, the, the soul of our life that's saved by Jesus and being crafted and molded and shaped, is that of more value than me having a life free from hardship and difficulty, a life where I don't really understand and learn the kindness of God and the farther heart of God, where I don't learn his mercy, where I don't learn that he's trustworthy. I mean, which life is really better? which is the life that we really want. God is really concerned with the end result. That's his primary concern. Um, it's like when you bake. Now, if you're a lady in here, you probably understand what I'm about to say. If you're a man, just get in the kitchen for an hour. And, but baking, my wife loves to bake. She loves baking brownies and, and cookies and cakes and just, you know, it's just, they're good, babe. You know what I mean? Uh, not every day, but she loves to bake. And here's the thing. If you've baked at all, you know what's your primary concern? The end result, right? That's all you think about. Listen, no one in this room looks at each ingredient and goes, Man, I'm going to test out each one, right? So you don't take the stick of butter and shove it in your mouth. Oh, ew, that's gross. It's disgusting. You don't take a cup of flour and start trying to drink it, right? You don't crack the egg yolk, throw it in your mouth. Ew, that's gross. It's disgusting. No one does that. Why? Because otherwise, you would taste each ingredient and go, that's gross, that's gross, that's disgusting, that's disgusting. You'd leave it all out, and all you'd have in the oven is a burnt pile of sugar, right? And then you pull it out, and you're going, it's just a burnt pile of sugar. That, that's what all of us would do. Here, here's the thing. None of us would do that in our lives. God does not do that in our lives either. God is primarily concerned that when you pull that thing out of the oven, you go, that is complete. That's not lacking any ingredient. It's good. It's tasteful. And this is why trials are opportunity. Because we often go, God, when I was 10, why'd you put that in my life, right? And when I turned 12, you, you allowed this. Why'd you put that ingredient in? Why'd you allow this in my family? Why'd you allow this hardship? Why'd you take this friend from me? Why'd you allow this suicide? Why'd you allow this pain? Why'd you allow my father to get cancer? Why'd you allow, we just, and just so you know, I'm with you in all of those. If you think I'm speaking from some ethereal place where I don't understand what it's like to, to bear burdens and walk in darkness, 
I've had family diagnosed. I've had fa- good friends commit suicide. I've had, I've had all those things happen. Listen, this is God saying in the midst of all those things, hold on, listen. Just trust me, man. These ingredients are for a reason. I want you to be full and complete, lacking in nothing. I'm not gonna leave you as a burnt pile of sugar in the oven. I don't leave any necessary ingredient out as I'm forming and shaping you. Really helps you with a lens by which to see all that we walk in. Because it's possible some of you are not as mature in Christ as you would like because you're not developing steadfastness. As soon as life gets hard, you always quit. Right? So, so you're in a relationship. As soon as it gets hard, you quit. You go to another relationship. As soon as it gets hard, you quit. You go to another relationship. As soon as it gets hard, you quit. Or then you go to a church. You have a conflict. So you leave. Then you go to another church. You have another conflict. And you leave. You forget that it's your problem, not the church. It's you showed up, right? So you keep going church, 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 and you just keep leaving. Or you have this job, it gets really hard, so you just jump ship and then get another job and it gets really hard and you jump ship. You, you know what you never do? You don't mature. You don't grow in steadfastness. You don't grow in depth. You don't grow in width. You don't grow in all that God is trying to grow in you through allowing this hardship and these trials that you meet. Um, he is absolutely for you in them. Paul says in Romans 5, perseverance produces character. James says steadfastness produces maturity. Same thing. They're both saying the same thing. Listen, trials are not about how strong you are. Like like trials are not, hey, how can I be a better me, find my inner strength? Listen, every pop psychologist, every self-help book you can read will say, hey, look inside you. This is how you overcome. You become strong. That's, That's not what James is saying. James is saying, look how strong he is. Okay, he's saying you're not strong at all. You're very weak. You're very frail. Okay, if you're in that, in that spot in your heart, you're in good company. My faith is failing. He, Jesus enters in and shows, hey, I'm really strong. He's the object of your faith. He's the object of your strength. So we learn that we grow in trials, not because you're awesome, not because you're really strong, but because you're being developed by a strength outside of you. And you're looking at the one who suffered for you. And you're drawing from that. And you're learning and you're gaining wisdom in why these things are. So number one, trials develop depth in our walk with Jesus Christ. Number two, they develop dependence. Look what he says in verse five. So if, as you're going through and meeting trials, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Here's my guess. When everything in your proverbial universe is going well, you seldom have your mind, heart, and affections on your dependence for the Lord. Like when everything's great and everything's lining up and all the planets are in orbit, seldom do you ever thank God or acknowledge his goodness and that he's in charge of it all and even the giver of the good stuff. And, and here's what often happens. You begin, because your heart is so dark, to celebrate the greatness that is your life as if you planned it that way. So I've made my universe this way now. Life is really good because I've done these things. And God's going, excuse me? Man, I let the rain fall on the just and the unjust. I give the, every type of gift. I give life and take life. Man, I'm the author of everything. And he's going to show us that it reveals our dependence. Because if you're not careful in the good seasons, you'll start growing that spiritual swagger that says, I've created all of this spiritual greatness. Look at my life. And then you'll meet a trial. So James says it's necessary to create this awareness of our dependence and need for him. So he says when you hit those moments, dark days, painful days, dark hours, ask for help. Ask for wisdom. You're going to need it. 
You're not going to need more knowledge. Knowledge is knowing stuff. Wisdom is actually doing something with the knowledge you know. Everyone's like, just tell me something. No, you need wisdom. No, just tell me something new. No, I've been telling you things for 17 months. You need to now apply what you hear and walk in wisdom and know what to do with it. So he says, ask for wisdom. Ask for help from God. I love it. God, the Father heart of God, look at it in this text. He gives without reproach. He's not going, screw up. Can't believe you made a mess of your life. He goes, man, come sit on dad's lap and ask me for help. Isn't that nourishing for you? As you view God and you view his character, that God is a God who says, hey, no, no, I love being asked for help from my kids. Man, in your, when you're sad, when it's difficult, when you're discouraged, man, come to me and ask for wisdom. Ask for help and I will give it to you without reproach. He doesn't say you're such a fool. Look at what you've done. Man, come to him and ask when you meet hardship. Cry out to him. Because James says when the hard times come, we tend to feel more than we think. And we need to think sometimes more than we feel. And we need to learn how to think rightly as we're feeling. You know, when I meet with others, when I, when I sit down in, in counseling appointments, um, this text tends to be a heartbeat that bubbles up almost more often than not. Where we get to a place and I go, man, let's just plead. Let's just ask. I'm at a loss. Let's ask the sovereign of the universe, ask him to grant us wisdom, grant us help, grant us understanding. And we go to that place and we ask him for those things, to intervene, to illuminate, to draw us to texts of scripture, to draw us to good counsel. But we ask for help in those moments. So let me just, let me just give you a, an encouragement. The, the, the world is not lacking information, it's lacking wisdom, okay? Uh, we're not lacking information, we're lacking wisdom, okay? So, so here's what I love to do and what I would encourage you to do is if you ever hear someone give you wisdom, whether it's through a, a sermon you hear, whether it's through a godly trusted friend, whether it's through the Holy Spirit leading you a certain way, whether it's through a text of scripture you read, man, write it down and revisit it and keep it. I mean, the, the wise things men and women who have gone before me have shared with me has so marked my life that I store those up and those are always being used over and over and over. This is what James is doing. He's storing up wisdom and he's revisiting it and giving it to us. It might be a good practice for you. Verse six, look at what he continues to say in this dependence piece. But, here's the but. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, you're like me. James seems schizophrenic at this point. You just said, James, if I need help, ask. Oh, and if you're doubting and you're, you know, questioning these things as you ask, don't ask. Okay, well, James, what is it? I mean, what, what am I really supposed to do here? There's, there's really two prayers you're seeing here. There's one that's sincere. There's one that's saying, ask for help. God, I believe you're good. I believe you're able. Help me in this. I need wisdom from you. The other type of prayer is unbelief. It's skeptical. And not only even skeptical as much, it's just outright fake. Yeah, God, um, tell me your will, even though when you tell me it, I'm not gonna do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, give me your counsel, even though I'm just giving you lip service. And even though I hear godly counsel telling me one thing, I'm just gonna do what I want anyways. Uh, some of you guys, I've pleaded with you for years, stop pretending. Like you get around people and you don't realize how fake you even come across. Your life's in shambles, you're running in sin and you just give people lip service. Oh yeah, man, life's great. Oh yeah, I'm doing this. Yeah, I'm doing that. Yeah, I'm gonna do this. Yeah, I've got this. Yeah, life's great, man. Purity off the chain, man. Sin got it down. I mean, what, what's wrong with you? I mean, man, listen, this, this place, the church, for people who can be honest and real and say, man, I gotta lean into something that's gonna help me because I'm on fire. 
Okay, and so he says, man, that's a double-minded man. The guy that just kind of comes up with these, yeah, yeah, God, I'm gonna ask you for help, but you know I don't really wanna do it. You don't really believe you even wanna help me. I don't even really believe you're able. That's a double-minded man. He doesn't answer those prayers. Do you think you're gonna receive anything from the Lord? But the person who says, man, like in Mark 9, I believe, help my unbelief. Man, I believe. I believe you're good. I believe you're for me. I believe you're maturing me. Man, there's a, there's a part of me that's just struggling in belief right now. Like, like my, my hand is wavering. I'm losing grip. I'm growing in weakness. I need you to strengthen the unbelief areas and keep me in the belief areas. Those are two very different ways to pray. Now, it's awesome to see that because if you look at Mark 9, you don't have to, but my wife and I were both led to Mark chapter 9 this week. It was so providential. And here's what you have. It won't be on the screen. I'm thinking, I just thought about this. But, but Mark chapter 9, you have the guy who has a, a, a son who's been demon-possessed since birth. This is where you get the help my belief or help my unbelief, right? Here's what happens. It's interesting to see this as you understand the types of ways to pray and ask. Verse 20 of chapter 9, it says this. They brought the boy, the kids, the father's boy to him. This is to Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus says, if you can. There's no like war going on in the cosmic realm where we're not sure who's going to win. Like I'm always going to win. If you can. He says, all things are possible for the one who believes. So Jesus says, hold on. You're coming to me, and you're saying, if I can help? No, I can help, right? Okay, double-minded man says, you can't help. I don't care what your will is. I don't care what you say in response. But look at what the Father does. The Father then exercises James 5. Immediately, the Father cries out and says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. So the father, in the midst of being corrected by Jesus, okay, you're right. That's a, that's a double way of thinking. Okay, I, I'm not that man. I'm not giving lip service. I genuinely want you to intervene. I genuinely want you to work. My faith is failing. I believe you're good. I believe you're God in the flesh. I've seen you do miracles. I believe you're who you say you is. But man, I, there's areas of unbelief. I'm, I'm weak. My son has been struggling with this for his whole life. <coughs> and does God honor that prayer? That's the question. Then Jesus saw the crowd running and rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, you mute deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, convulsing terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. Most of them said he's dead. Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up and he rose. And when he entered his house, his disciples said, wow, we couldn't cast this out. And he said to him, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What do you see? Apparently, God works and honors the fight. Apparently, struggle's okay. Apparently, when you're in the midst of trial and you're meeting something hard, if it's sincere and it's from a place of authenticity and you're still appealing to the right things you believe about God, you can still absolutely lay at his feet where you're struggling in your belief. And let God meet you there because apparently he answers that. Apparently, he rewards that. Apparently, he's not about the guy who's given lip service. He's about the guy who's just frail, who's weak, who admits his vulnerability and says, this is where I need help. I still believe these things about you. My faith is failing in this area. Can you help me? What a beautiful, beautiful picture from Jesus and James that this is the way we can ask for wisdom, that we can cry out for help, 
and that God will absolutely intervene. So trials develop depth. They develop dependence on God that remind you of who's really in charge, who really owns your life, who's really good, who's really in authority. And finally, they reveal your depravity. They reveal your depravity. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Here's what's happening. These people are being marginalized, pushed to the fray. These people who are running for their lives. James is writing to people who are on the outskirts, the outcasts. And they were seeing people who were somebody and had something grow in that and use it to dishonor the Lord. And they're going, this isn't fair. They're going, hold on a second, man, I I love you, I'm following you, I gave my life to you, and this is how you repay me? That's what they were seeing all around, and because here's the truth, guys. Um, When you hit trials, do we not tend to over-romanticize everybody else's life? Is that not true about you and me? The second you meet something hard, the second you enter into that space, is really difficult, you start looking at everybody else around you going, man, their life's awesome, their life's intact, they got it all together, look at what they're making. All of a sudden, you start living through a lens that it'll totally betray you and is nothing but false. It reveals the depravity in your heart. It reveals the darkness that's there. That's what trials do. They reveal to you how you're totally looking at not through the lens that God desires, and it usually plays out through comparison. Second you walk through hardship, comparison bleeds out of you. And here's how it usually plays out. Um, You meet a trial, something hard happens, and then you see somebody else, and you claim it as unfair, and anger and bitterness and resentment begin to build towards that person. And James is saying, man, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man boast in humiliation. Do you know at the end, it's all gonna be gone? Here's what he's saying. One day, yes, we all meet trials, but we all meet Jesus. So he gives you two pieces of wisdom as your depravity is exposed, as the darkness of your heart is exposed, as you grow in comparison. Number one, he says, always see yourself through the, Father, the eyes of Father God. He walks you through this, right? In darkness, right, he meets his kids. You're sad, you're depressed, you're discouraged. How is this working out? This isn't fair. I'm looking at everybody else around me and they seem to be doing well. The scale doesn't seem to fit. A lot of Ecclesiastes in here. And, and he just says, remember who you are in trials. Trials don't dictate your worth. Jesus dictates your worth. In Christ, you're not lowly. You're exalted. You're not worthless. You're priceless. So don't think that these trials you've met make you of any less value because you see other people who are growing in this dishonorable way. Man, just like the flower fades and is scorched up by the heat, one day we'll all stand before Jesus Christ, and that's what really matters is what he's doing in the meantime. It's not based upon, is your life easier than somebody else's? It's, are you seen through the eyes of the Father, heart of God in Christ? And that's why it says the second piece, you have to have an eternal view. That's what he's saying. Withers the grass, the flower falls, its beauty perishes. The rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Man, you were getting so preoccupied with comparison. You're getting so preoccupied by, by comparing everybody else's life to yours. And he says, not only does everyone meet trials, everyone will one day meet Jesus. So if there's one thing you should boast in, it's that you're known by him. 
there's one thing you should boast in, it's that he is forming and maturing you and hasn't abandoned you. There's one thing you should boast in, it's something that's eternal like your soul, being shaped and molded and crafted to be an eternal jewel, to be in the palm of the Father's hand one day in glory. That's what you boast in. You don't boast in, man, I have this and they don't have this, or I'm walking through this and they're not walking through this. No, you boast in the things that are eternal, one being the maturity and ever-shaping nature of God's pursuit over your life through you meeting trials as you learn to grow dependent on him and as the darkness of your heart is exposed. And if you're not a Christian, the the wisdom from James, the, the admonishment from James is, man, Um, don't trust in a life that's free from hardship. Don't trust in a life that's free from suffering. Trust in Jesus who suffered for you. Man, trust in Jesus who went to the cross, taking your sin, your shame, your condemnation, bared it in full on on, on the behalf of the Father, man, took all the right wrath of God towards you in your sin and said, no, I will quench it, I will propitiate it, I will absorb it, I will die and take your life and you will die with me too. I will rise and you can be risen with me too and then I will gift you my Holy Spirit. So now for the Christian, the one in Christ, the lens by which they see the entire world, difficulty, suffering, hardship is flipped on its head, and it's not something to avoid, but something to lean into when it comes. We need wisdom for that, don't we? Let's ask God for that wisdom. God, we need wisdom, we need help from you to learn how to do this. God, we need to be reminded of truths. We need to be reminded of your goodness and your character, and we need to be reminded that you are building into us a depth and maturity God, we need to remember that we are fully dependent on you even when the sun is shining and the water is clear as when the water is dark and the tide seems to be sweeping us out. God, we are desperately dependent on you in every last day, minute, hour of our life. God, I pray for those in this room that are pretending, that are double-minded, that God, you would bring them to a place of honest confession, of honest prayer before you, that they might see their maturity might just be because they're double-minded. And God, those who are sincerely asking for wisdom, God, would you grant them help? Would you grant them understanding? Would you help them to walk rightly in the season that they are in, leaning heavily into you and your saints? God, I pray we'd be a Galatians 6 church that would bear one another's burdens, that would help carry the weak and exhort where necessary. Father, would you help us to heed sound instruction and sound wisdom. Thank you that James is trying to pull us into deeper life and deeper joy. Help our souls say it as well. Help that to be true and not just a saying or a phrase. God, help us to see the maturing of us in the likeness of your son to be something that we gladly and truly and sincerely want. Give that to us. And as we take this supper, help us remember that it was you who suffered so that when we walk through suffering, you are not punishing us because you have gladly punished your own son for us. God, free men and women right now who believe that you are punishing them, who believe that you've abandoned them, who believe that you're obligated to give every answer to their hurt and pain with the know that the Father heart of God that loves them, that's for them, that punished your son in their place so that all of suffering is not punitive, but formative. In Jesus' name, amen.